Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormer and Strike and Robin Ellicott, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Pools. And today we'll be continuing our reread of the Ink Black Heart, this time covering chapters 53 through 57 of part three. Please be aware, as always, that our discussion of the Ink Black Heart will occasionally reference the ending of this book, as well as the rest of the books in the series. Before we get started on today's episode, we do have a few things that we want to go over, and I think the most exciting thing of those things has to be that we got word from Joe that she is working on the eighth strike book. <gasps> oh my god! Which is so exciting! So exciting! This is the very first time we've heard that she's working on book eight. And mm-hmm. I am proud of us all, the whole fandom, because yeah. we didn't ask. I wanted to ask the question so bad. Yeah, but we played it cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we acted like cool. normal people. Right. And we won. Totally we normal people. Mm-hmm. That is us. Good job, everyone. <laughs> yep. I am throwing out my guess that we'll be getting book eight in the fall of 2024. What do you guys think? Yeah. I mean, I would love it. Can you imagine? Yeah, I'm imagining it right now. Wow. I feel like maybe she'll take her time and work a tiny bit slower. And the latest we get it is spring 2025. But honestly, fall 2024 seems super plausible to me. Yeah, that sounds about right. I couldn't believe we got the running grave this fast. So I know I fully did not expect to get the running grave until well book seven as I was calling it in my head I didn't expect to get that until the fall of 2024 yeah so the fact that we're getting the running grave this year it seems likely to me that we'll get book eight in 2024 which is when I thought we'd be getting book seven so it's just I feel like we all need to send her a thank you card for her hard work absolutely (laughs) does anybody else feel like she's gonna blaze through eight and nine as well because I'm thinking just based off of what she was saying in one of the Q&As where she's talking about, do you know what's next for Strike and Robin? Mm-hmm. She says that she's plotted books eight and nine. She knows where yeah. they're going. She's that answer lives out. in my brain. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I do wonder if she's going to just blaze through those because, you know, she's plotted out those key moments and she's really excited to finally get to the good stuff. So am I. Yeah. That answer thrills me every time I read it, hear it think about it. I Mm -hmm. hope your interpretation is correct, Ken. I think it's totally possible. I had briefly wondered if she had given herself a timeline or a goal because she just seems to be knocking them out. But I remembered her saying for one of the Potter books that she wrote with a deadline and that she hated it. So I don't know. My hope is along with you guys very much that she's been so excited to write the stuff coming up for the aforementioned relationship reasons that the actual writing part is coming super easy to her. Stupid, but it makes me wonder if she didn't want to have to write them being estranged and lethal white because it was miserable. So all that other stuff she did was the procrastination projects to avoid it. But I know that that's probably not the case. Yeah, I'm thinking so. (laughs) It was like a few chapters before they got back into their friendship groove. Now that's why she did the one year later. That's because she really didn't want to have to write that. (laughs) To me, Lethal White has some of the best foreshadowing moments in the entire series. I just, I can't imagine wanting to cross. I love Lethal White so much. So that is... Maybe me, I can't. Maybe they did. Maybe it just felt like longer to me. I don't know. I just like the way that Joe writes internal anguish. She does such a good job of it. Yeah, she does. Shall we get to the Q&A? Yes. Now, I really liked this question. And what made me suggest it for this episode is I really love how Joe describes Comic-Con because that's in this set of chapters and I can just like see it in my head. them like panning up above a huge crowd full of people. So 
this particular question is about the TV show. And the question is, when you write, do you have TV in mind? I never think of the TV show when I'm writing the novels. I don't see Tom and Holiday in my head. I still see the characters as I imagined them when I started writing. And I'm absolutely fine if readers are visualizing Tom on holiday, you know, I'm, that's absolutely fine. You know, that they play them so beautifully. But I think for the creator, it is different. I still see the characters as I initially imagined them. And also I now know Tom and holiday as human beings. So it's quite hard for me to put these two people that I know and really like into those, this fictional world, because I know them away from the character. So, um, yeah, it doesn't really, no, I'm, as I say, I'm quite tunnel vision. I've got my vision and I'm not going to be deflected by things like that. First, I know I say this all the time, but I'm going to say it again because I would love to know how she pictures both of them. I feel like I've heard this somewhere before and it's nothing to do with JK Rowling, but I feel like I've heard that sometimes authors will be slightly vague in their descriptions so that readers can project themselves onto the main characters and relate to them more. I don't know if that's a thing that I'm making up, but I feel like I've heard that. I've never heard that, but it makes sense. Well, she's much more descriptive when it comes to Strike than she is with Robin. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I think that Robin's appearance has caused some debate in my memory. I don't know what my point is other than I would love to know how she sees them, but I wonder if she's been vague on purpose there. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the actual question, I don't picture the actors in my head either. Yeah, neither do I. I can understand why people who watched the TV show first would picture the actors but by the time the adaptation came around strike and robin were so firmly them in my head that nothing was going to change that i agree the version of strike and robin that i carry around in my head doesn't really look like tom or holiday and even though i like consumed the tv series and the book series all mixed up and together i don't think that my internal image of what strike and robin looked like have ever been Tom or Holiday. But I, I do have to say that after seeing those illustrations from that version of Cuckoo's Calling that Patricio over at the Rolling Library did, my mental image of Strike kind of looks like what the illustration of Strike is in that particular version. Hmm. And then put that together with Robert Glenister's version of his Strike voice from the audiobooks. And then, yes. And as far as my mental image of Robin, there is a woman who was, I think, the either stunt or body double for young Janice in Troubled Blood, and I can't remember what her name is off the top of my head, but she looks very close hmm. to who I was thinking of. I know who you mean. Your images are different than mine. I have two pieces of fan art that I think are the closest to what I picture. I know you know which one I'm talking about for Strike. I'll have to find the Robin one, but yeah. Hmm. I kind of wish this question was asked in reverse because I want to know if they have the books in mind when writing the TV show, and not in the obvious way. That we know that they do. It's clear to me that everyone working on the show is very faithful to the books. I don't mean it like that. But I mean, are there things that they do or don't do because they'll be important later? Like I know, Pools, you mentioned Brittany being found in the commune. Or I guess the scene in Troubled Blood where Strike looks at the picture of Charlotte. Do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. are there specific things in the adaptation that are put there because of future books? That's what I want to know. I gotta think that's the case. Because we know that when they're making the Harry Potter movies, Joe gave them certain people key information about stuff that was mm -hmm. upcoming, right? To make sure it would yeah. fit. I feel like the Britney commune thing was too specific and too new to be unrelated to something coming up. Hmm. I can't believe that Britney Brockbank would actually come back again. 
but maybe she does i'll be honest i'm not really sold on the britney commune thing because i don't see how it connects well the commune coming up in the running grave maybe well no i i know that that's what you mean i just i i don't see what the point of britney being in one is because sure i can just say we lived in a commune i don't know how that they would tie that back to career evil yeah fair enough anyway if it's the case if this is being done deliberately based on info that joe's given the showrunners I feel like it doesn't bode well for our theory that Gillespie is the killer of Lita, does it? Because we've only gotten like one brief mention of him in the show, haven't we? I think we have to think about it and consider it because it would have been telling if they had Strike mentioned Gillespie in that scene. Mm-hmm. But I'm not throwing the whole theory away because there's so many different ways that they can reintroduce it. Mm-hmm. But I did definitely wonder about its absence. Yeah, me too. Yeah, you know, this discussion is reminding me, I remember there was a, a little flurry of discussion around the time when there was a bunch of press and stuff for the tv version of troubled blood and tom burke was saying something about talking to joe about strike and charlotte's relationship Mm -hmm. and that there's stuff that we don't know that's coming up in future books yeah from their past from their past right yeah yeah so does make you wonder i've been wondering about that for a long time since he said it yeah i'm wondering about that too now Going back to Joe's answer, I really liked it. I don't know why fully, but I'm just really glad that Joe has such a strong sense of her characters. It makes me happy, although it makes sense because she couldn't write such powerful characters if she didn't have a strong mental sense of, of who they are. Anyway, speaking of things that make me happy, which is a very normal segue, our amazing guest blogs have been so great lately and we have just shared a post written by dr louise freeman about strike's many memory lapses in ink black heart now louise had the brilliant thought that these might be subtle hints of strike's repressed trauma being triggered and manifesting itself and in her blog post she shares some thoughts about what that might mean for the running grave so everyone should go over and read it right away because it's really good i really liked this post because i think i tend to focus on strike's childhood trauma and the mm-hmm. trauma of his relationship with charlotte but not the explosion so much mm-hmm. and it's kind of weird that i don't because it's the one trauma that he actually does occasionally acknowledge he tells mm-hmm. robin about his troubles being driven we've seen the nightmares yeah it was definitely a serious uh, physical mental trauma for him life-changing life-changing absolutely it was strange to me that there was no specific reference to his his ptsd from the iid after the bomb in their office went off because it, yeah. it feels like there should but i love the idea that louise is putting forward is that there are subtle clues that it's affected him more than he thinks in the book the subtle clues you mentioned they're not just with his memory or his level of stress increasing after the bomb but mm-hmm. even right after for me how he's so focused on taking care of pat that i wonder if that's so that he doesn't have to think about it himself. Yeah. It also really makes a lot of sense to me how he and Robin are kind of butting heads a bit when it comes to safety after this, because he's so much more shaken up by this than either of them are really thinking about. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I like agree. That. I think we all have hopes for, for healing soon. I also just wanted to mention the group reread that she's doing over on her Farting Sofa blog. By the time this episode comes out, it will have already started. It starts or it started on May 14th, but there's plenty of time to catch up because she's 
posted a schedule and hosting this reread that's going to take everyone all the way to the running grave with discussion points going up on Mondays and Thursdays. So we'll post the link to that if you want to join in and read along. Awesome. One last thing before we start, we got an email this morning that I really liked and I wanted to read from Kate. Mm. So it says, hi there, beautiful and amazing podcast host. I guess that's us. I guess. <laughs> amazing. I'll take. I was just listening to the most recent episode, Birds of a Feather, and had a thought about Strike's future realizations about Charlotte that I wanted to share. I know that you guys really like the idea of him realizing that he was never in love with Charlotte once he's actually with Robin, but I don't think that's actually how he will frame it slash what's true. I think that Strike will continue to describe that time as being in love with Charlotte, and I think that he's right in that. I think he really did know her and how she worked, and he felt all the things that you feel when you're in love. I think what he's going to realize is that she wasn't capable of being fully in love with him. Maybe some part of her really did love him. I don't know. Or maybe he'll realize she was really just using him entirely. That's possible too. But either way, I think that Strike's love of Charlotte, as unworthy as she was, and as much as he shouldn't have taken her abuse, is actually going to remain important to him. That's who he is. Someone who loves the people in his life well, even when things are rough. But he has to learn that some people don't deserve love. Or perhaps more specifically, he deserves love and can't give himself to people that don't give that in return. Mm. If this alone isn't convincing, consider the parallels with Leda that you, I think, rightly are often drawing between Leda and Charlotte. I don't think the solution is going to be that he realizes he never really loved Leda. What he needs to realize is that while he loved her and he doesn't need to apologize for that, cough, cough, Lucy, he does... <laughs> He does need to realize that she didn't fully love him back in the way that he deserved, and that isn't and wasn't okay. I believe Leda really did love Strike in some real ways, but her level of neglect and abandonment of him were unacceptable. And when he can name that, he may begin to realize that he shouldn't have had to carry pain with love when it came to Leda nor Charlotte, but that mm -hmm. he did love those women well. So he will love Robin well, but trust that she is different than those women who used him as often as, if not more, than they loved him. Just some mm -hmm. random thoughts. Thank you, Kate. I really liked this email because I think I at one point was trying to say something similar, but could not form my thoughts. So I just deleted the whole thing. Hmm. So I agree with her, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. What do you guys think? Yeah. I think that Strike's experience of being with Robin and being loved by Robin is going to blow his goddamn mind and it's going to reframe so much of his history. Yeah. Do you think that he loved her, but it, it wasn't a safe love? No. No. And now he's he's going to see what a, a safe and healthy love is. Maybe that's kind of yeah. what I'm thinking. He's going to find out what it means to actually have faith in the person you love yeah. and, and know that you have a solid future with them, which I think is a probably a completely different sensation than what he ever felt with Charlotte. Oh, yeah. Well, we know that because he says deep down he knew it would never yeah. work. But this time he's going to know deep down that it gonna work oh my gosh are we in our feelings already mm -hmm. it's got me in my feels i think that that sounds more conducive to healing than him feeling like Aww. he's like wasted all of his time or that it wasn't actually love at all i love the connection to leda because i absolutely agree that she did love him but it was very limited in yeah. what she was capable of of giving mm -hmm. i agree okay should we jump into chapter 53 all right so the conflict within drex game escalates and paper white and morehouse confess their feelings for each other ah which was yeah initially <laughs> aw on first read oh boy How this chapter is fun on a second read yes the epigraph sweet is the swamp with its secrets until we meet a snake 
and that's The Snake by Emily Dickinson. This was the epigraph that I picked for the one that I liked when you guys did the epigraph episode. So I'm kind of repeating myself sort of here, Mm -hmm. but Drek's game feels like a swamp full of secrets, and we all know who the biggest snake is in the swamp. Mm -hmm. And I really like, well, I don't like it, but it's clever that Gus, as Paperwhite, calls Morehouse Mouse because he's a snake setting up his mouse to be trapped, you know? yes such a darkly appropriate nickname i don't have much to add i think you nailed it in chapter 53 there are three separate chats they're between morehouse and then the other moderators so he has a chat going with anime one with paperwhite and one with fiendy i might have an unpopular opinion for this chapter because it's the first time that i am not loving morehouse I think we see a different side of him that I don't like. I kind of agree, especially in regards to Fiendy. Yeah. Whatever Morehouse is thinking with in this chapter, it's not his upstairs brain, is it? Yeah. (laughs) I'm just saying. Because all of these chats are going on simultaneously, I was thinking we could just go over them each person Mm -hmm. at a time. So we'll start out with Anime and Morehouse. Mm -hmm. And Anime starts off being extra nice to Morehouse, calling him blah, saying people have been missing him and mentioning Paperwhite. And then we find out quickly why that is. And that's because Lord Drek and Vile Petura are still in the game. I feel like this is where Gus's work as Paperwhite, where he's been telling everybody, tell mm-hmm. Morehouse I'm looking for him, all of that stuff. That's where this is going to pay off. Gus has put all this work into it. And now we read Anime saying, Paperwhite's been on here 24-7 asking people if they've seen you. He's been working for this moment and we're about to see it happen. Yeah. To me anime slash Gus is coming off a lot less confidently here. Now, do you guys think that that's all just an act or do you feel like any of that's genuine? We've never really gotten to see what the friend dynamic was like between anime and Morehouse because they must have been actual pretty close friends back when they were building the game, right? And it seems to me that anime might be trying to bring back that dynamic as a way of manipulating Morehouse and trying to keep him on the hook. It's so strange to think of Gus having friends. Yeah. Real, actual (laughs) friends. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, he must have been less awful at some point. It's hard to imagine, but yeah. Yeah. Next, Morehouse accuses Anime of having a crush on Paperwhite and of stalking her online by using her email signup information. Now, interestingly... Anime expresses Mm -hmm. some ambivalence towards Morehouse and Paperwhite being a couple and seems to be willing to do anything to keep him around, which is only, I think, because he wants to continue to see what Morehouse knows and what he'll do next, right? I think that's part of it. I think a lot of it is also that he doesn't want Morehouse to actually go make real world connections. So encouraging this relationship with Paperwhite serves his purpose. It's a classic catfish move. Morehouse really should have called Neve. Is that a reference to some catfish? It's a reference to the TV show Catfish, yes. Okay, I've never seen it. He's a man with chest hair that rivals strikes, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think there's also an element of anime taking delight in this manipulation. Egging Morehouse on with Paperwhite, pushing him deeper into this relationship, knowing that at some point in the future, he's going to have the rug pulled out from under him and really enjoying the pain that's coming up. Which makes me think, is anime planning on killing Morehouse yet, do you think? Oh, I don't know. Mm. I'm thinking maybe not yet because he's still thinking he can control him. Yeah. But I I wonder if we can pinpoint the moment when he decides. Maybe. There's got to be. Because at this point, yeah, if he keeps Morehouse on, but he knows Morehouse can lead people to him, Gus. So he's got to be like, 
plan B in it's case it's got to be in his right? mind. Yeah, I was wondering that too. If like the little seed of maybe this guy needs to go. Yeah, the conversation takes an interesting turn when Morehouse asks Anime when he sees the game ending. When Anime says it'll last as long as I want it to last, that was just so chilling to me. Mm-hmm. Gus is so unbalanced and like desperate to cling to this game and like power that he holds over people in the game and in the fandom in general. And it really came across. Yeah, I feel like when something becomes your identity, the thought of that ending is so unfathomable. He's given up literally everything else in his life to be anime. And without it, it kind of feels like, who is he? He has to feel that. In a way that makes him feel a bit sad. Not sad for Anami himself, because he's a psychopath. But I suppose I understand to some extent this wish that something or someone you find joy in can just stay the way it is forever but knowing it can't and accepting that and allowing yourself to be open to change and knowing that the future might be different but there'll be happiness in it too it's an essential part of emotional maturity and we see morehouse understanding this and anime absolutely refusing to accept it and committing multiple murders so that he doesn't have to to grow as a person that is pretty extreme yeah uh, pretty extreme and i'm not sure where i was going with this but it just makes me feel sad what you're saying is making me think back to when harry potter ended and there was a sense of sadness that that part of it was ending like the new stories mm-hmm. the theorizing but i guess what you're saying about finding the joy in different ways is true for me because now so many years later i'm starting to share that joy with my kids or you can relive it or you can get obsessed with the new series that the same (laughs) author is writing (laughs) you can do that too yeah so i think like with these books i'm forever grateful that i got to experience them and i'm getting to experience them as they're being written Mm -hmm. but i also there is so much joy that they leave when they're over. Absolutely. But anime just can't understand that. Yeah, that kind of got away from me from anime's But no, point, yeah, but, but I know. like your point and it's making me feel a sense of nostalgia for Harry Potter. Towards the end of Morehouse's chat with anime, anime says, loves for pussies. And it's like, Lovely. okay, Mr. Edgelord, Jesus Christ. Yeah, really? This is one of those moments where I really like the way the chat is set up because you have this lovely statement from Gus right next to Paperwhite and Morehouse saying they love each other. And now knowing the twist, I can now imagine Gus laughing to himself about this and thinking how clever he is. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. good the way it's set up. Yeah, it really is. Gus using love in one as a manipulation tactic while gleefully thinking about what an idiot Morehouse is for falling yeah. for it. And outright telling him that in another channel. It's really well done. Should we go to the next chat? Yes. The next one is Morehouse and Paperwhite. And their chat starts out with Paperwhite reaching out to apologize. Okay. I want to do a little what if scenario here. Because I still struggle with the way Morehouse reacted to this. I think rereading the book and knowing that Gus is Paperwhite kind of blinds me to Morehouse's reaction. Mm -hmm. So let's say for a minute that Paperwhite is real. And this young woman named Nicole genuinely cares for him. If she found out about his disability from someone else, went to him with it and said, I found this out. It doesn't matter. I really like you. All of this stuff, which is what happened. And from Morehouse's perspective is real. 
his very angry reaction and punishing her with the silent treatment is to me some bad behavior kind of reminds me of strike's reaction to charlotte when he said the thing about if i believed women deserved it just because i think that they're both good men but it's these are both very triggered reactions you know what i mean when you said this i went back to look at the dates of the chats and Paperwhite asked him if he was disabled on April 10th. Then he disappears out of the game until May 20th? Because that is a long yeah. time to just disappear for. Mm-hmm. I can understand him being angry and upset. And he's right. clearly deeply insecure. But I agree. If this is someone you care about, cares about you, that's a long time to ghost for. I was going to say that he's mad at the wrong person, but literally he's mad at the right person. He just doesn't know it. But yeah, Yeah. (laughs) honestly, I can understand Morehouse needing to just get out of the game completely with what's going on with Enemy and Lord Dragonfall Petra. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I think all of that added together, Paperwhite just being the last straw made him want to just drop it and get get the hell out. (laughs) I've been there, done that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Same. But I'm so glad that you looked at these dates because... I wanted to do that and then forgot. Mm -hmm. So thank you for doing the work. You're welcome. (laughs) But yeah, you're right. It's a long time to give someone the silent treatment, especially Mm -hmm. if it's someone who you're in a kind of romantic thing with. Yeah. During the course of their conversation, Morehouse tells Paperwhite that he's not going to Comic-Con and that she can go with her quote unquote boyfriend instead. Do you think that Gus was keeping watch on the real Nicole social media so that he could be prepared for these kind of confrontations? Because he'd have to come up with something if the real Nicole starts posting pictures with a boyfriend. You know what? That seems plausible. And we know that Gus does love stalking women online. Kind of his hobby so yeah sounds fun <laughs> there's only one i mean to I be fair online. i stalk a woman online. <laughs> yeah after i said it out loud i was like okay i was like all the okay stones glass houses etc <laughs> i don't want to use the word stalk. okay just keep a very close eye right. on the twitter notifications for right Mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. it's weird with Gus because there's a part of him that plans so much like with ordering the masks and the machete but he mm-hmm. does tend to act really recklessly and spontaneously as well so it's hard yeah. to know what he's actually planning and what he's just doing just as a doing to cause chaos or be an asshole their discussion leads to both Morehouse and Paperwhite confessing their love for each other and I remember when I first read this I was like this is so sweet (laughs) i do remember when i finished reading this chapter for the first time i went back and looked at the epigraph and i was like huh oh that seems weird (laughs) like i wasn't sure what it meant but i was like that seems a little strange that should have been a little hint maybe (laughs) yeah something's not right Yeah. yeah but like we were saying earlier it really serves as a stark contrast to Annamie's parting line to Morehouse that love is for pussies. And back to the epigraph, this is where it fits so nicely for me because all of Gus's work to trap Morehouse with this paper white thing feels solidified with this confession of love. Morehouse is in love now. He's not leaving the game because he wants that connection. Mm -hmm. And Gus also knows that it's going to take a lot to get Morehouse to move that relationship outside of the game. So the snake has now set up his mousetrap. I can't help but sit here and imagine how happy Morehouse feels at this moment because we know he's insecure we know he probably thought he'd never get to have this kind of relationship and now this beautiful woman who has basically been expertly crafted to appeal to him is telling him that she loves him that she doesn't care about his disability he's got to be having that giddy butterflies in the stomach ego can't stop grinning 
feeling right now and i hate adam so much for doing this because my heart's breaking for more house is it kind of awful that i hope adam didn't tell him that paper white wasn't real before he killed him i just hope that morris died believing that she loved him i mean it's not awful why i don't think there's any way that it's awful i just don't think it's likely okay I mentioned earlier that Morehouse had a conversation going with Fiendy, and that's where we're at now. So shortly before Morehouse tells Paper White that Fiendy is a girl, Fiendy opens up a chat with Morehouse to respond to an email that he sent her. And I have to say that their argument here is hard to read. It is. And this is another time where I'm not loving Morehouse. And this time I don't have to be hypothetical about it because Rachel is a real person and he's terrible to her. Yeah. I mean, Rachel is the only person who genuinely cares about him in this chapter who isn't manipulating him. And he's awful. And you just made me realize, Kens, that he tells Fiendy's secret that she's a girl when he's mad about her telling his secret. That little hypocrite. Mm -hmm. come on i kind of want to smack morehouse upside the head during this chat Mm because oh come on there's a lot that makes me feel bad for rachel here but when he uses her struggles with alcohol against her by suggesting that she wouldn't remember saying it that was a really low blow Mm -hmm. yeah it was i just don't think his reaction to her is proportionate to what happened yeah i completely agree like fiendy is just 16 she's clearly having a hell of a time the punishment he's meeting out here does not fit the crime in my opinion and the wheelchair joke he's mad at was over a year ago so she was what 15 14 like i get that it's a horrible joke to make but she's been apologizing she feels terrible clearly i guess that fiendy's real crime in this chapter is not being an expert manipulator like gus she's uh being genuine and truthful she's not flattering or guilting morehouse to get him to do what she wants it's just a shame because yeah it is a shame all right chapter 54 strike and robin go to comic-con and again i'm still astounded that you managed to predict this correctly pools i don't think i'll ever be over it and i don't think you will either yeah no i'm excited too <laughs> and the epigraph for this chapter reads masks and flocks and shoals flesh and bloodless hazy masks surround there, ever wavering orbs and poles and that's christina rossetti's a castle builder's world i think this is just a clear reference to them being at comic-con with lots of people in masks and costumes yeah it does seem like a pretty literal reference to their entrance into this comic-con world yeah where everyone including them are masked disguised in huge crowds the poem itself is interesting it's short but powerful the castle builder's world that the speaker presents is really grim the fruit of labor isn't harvested in this world the people living there are soulless so it makes me think The castle builders, the people who build the castles in this context, in a Comic-Con context, are they the fans building imaginary castles in their fantasy worlds and neglecting the real one? Because that would be a pretty negative commentary on fandom for a book that does recognize some of the powerfully good elements that fandom can have. But we also get revelations about the way Ross treats his daughters in this chapter. And I suppose if you're going to describe anyone as a castle builder, it'd be the wealthy upper class of Britain, right? And I think that a soulless mask wearer would describe Jacob Bross pretty well. So that was my best stab at it. The chapter opens with Strike and Robin agreeing to use Venetia Hall again to interview Yasmin. And Robin spends a few hours writing articles online to beef up Venetia's journalistic credentials. Robin says they're terrible. I'm not sure that I agree with that. I bet they were fantastic. 
But it makes me laugh when Strike says, well, with luck, Yasmin's literary standards aren't that high. I don't know. I'm with Robin because this gave me secondhand stress on her behalf because writing something, even fake articles, stresses me out because I don't think I'm good at it. So I felt for Robin, yeah, it would not have been a fun task for me. Right. The thought of that gives me major anxiety. Yeah, same. Well, I was thinking that Robin should use ChatGPT to do it for her. But then I realized the tool isn't really available at this time because these books are set in the past. But it's going to make her job way easier in a few years when she has to set up a cover again. So Yasmin writes back to Robin a day later. Does anybody have any thoughts about her email? My first thought was that it definitely sounded like her. The Hartella voice is very strong. For very sure. Much is, yeah. It's really interesting that she can do that. Do you know what I, I mean? Know, right? Yeah. Yeah. And her voice definitely came through really mm. well. Yeah. My thought was that the email reads is very carefully crafted. Maybe this is my email overthinking showing because I did this a lot. But for example, the ratio of exclamation marks to periods feels like it's been through several drafts to carefully convey enthusiasm, but not insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe that's just the thing that I do with my emails. <laughs> I don't know. That is relatable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the level of anxiety that you just described rings yeah. true to me, uh, yeah. especially for Yasmin. So <laughs> maybe it was carefully crafted in that way. The thing that hits me about this email, though, is that she says that Drex Game is a place for fans to discuss the show. And I realized that I don't think we've ever seen them discussing the show. I know that we're mostly (laughs) in the mod chat, so it's a bit different. But I did think that that was a bit funny and a nice reminder that they actually do that. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny how she like writes around the bits where they actually Mm -hmm. talk about the show. It's kind of alluded to in a couple of spots. Anytime there's a jam in, you know, one of the places, I guess that's that must be how they talk about the show, right? Yeah. With the clues. It does make me appreciate these little moments where we're reminded that this is a real thing that people do love and it's just, it's not all terrible. Yeah. We learned that Strike took Robin up on her suggestion that he dress up as Darth Vader with the right color lightsaber and everything. She just couldn't think of anything else. No, it's because she said he'd look lovely. Okay, that's why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a line here that makes me laugh where he says, Comic-Con is exactly the place they'd rumble I was fishy because my lightsaber's green. He's not wrong. Although no. good for him for knowing that they're wrong colors because I did not always know that that was a thing. Oh. I think that's a thing I learned more recently. Was it because you were in the Star Wars land in Disneyland? I think it might have been Disneyland, yeah. But yeah, so I'm I'm assuming that Strike has definitely seen the Star Wars movies a few times because I suppose probably grew up with them. I do love that it made Robin laugh though. I wish she could have mm-hmm. caught a glimpse of herself in the mirror like last time and saw herself oh. smiling. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been cute. Just put mirrors up everywhere all around <laughs> Just the Just have Robin Walker a mirrored office? Oh my god. <laughs> we find out that Anime is upset that Hartella is blowing off Comic-Con, and we find out shortly after that it's to go to this interview with Robin. Do you think there's a, any way that Gus doesn't know what Yasmin looks like or who she is? Because I was thinking the same as Robin, that she must feel comfortable with not getting caught or not being afraid of him because it's hard to believe that he doesn't know who everyone is and he's eventually going to figure it out anyway. I would be really surprised if he didn't know what Yasmin looked like Yeah, just because of his propensity for stalking, you know. Um, (laughs) I think that she just might be really, really naive and Mm -hmm. she doesn't realize just how dangerous Gus is. Yeah. Yeah. Does she think that Anami doesn't 
know the identities of the moderators so he won't connect her with Hartella because that would be pretty naive I don't think that Yasmin is being naive because she doesn't think they'd be connected because she definitely knows that he's going to connect the two of them because Anime knows Hartella is writing the book oh right so he'll see Yasmin give the interview but yeah. I think she's being naive because of what Ken's is saying that she doesn't realize how dangerous he is oh I forgot that Anime knew about the book to be actually fair I don't know if that's being naive nobody I mean, knows how really he has dangerous confessed to a murder several times in front of her yeah I know yeah. that she's like oh he can't be serious he must be joking yeah, she's a she's a head in the sand person. It's another bird. More birds. Even if she didn't believe him, Anime is very nasty when he doesn't get his way. And she's yeah. seen that. So did mm-hmm. she think he's going to be cool with her blowing this off? Maybe she thinks he'll forgive her for the publicity that she's going to oh, get their book. Yeah, you know? that seems like a possibility. I like the point that Robin makes about taking the tube to Comic-Con rather than driving. Mm-hmm. And this is another spot where I feel like her perspective being younger is really valuable. It's a funny conversation because we all get to imagine Cormoran Strike in his Darth Vader costume on the tube. (laughs) So it works comically. But I also like this because it's another time, even before Strike notices it, that Robin is calling the shots. So I think this is a good moment for her. It's really funny how Strike is like, I have to go on the tube dressed like <laughs> yeah, darth vader like he's so like i don't want to do this it's hilarious <laughs> yeah i wouldn't want to do it either i love his comment about her having to help him because he can't see his feet she's gonna be leading mm-hmm. him around like the Clydesdale again and i just love that <laughs> also can i say please keep comic-con bit in the show so i can see tom burke dresses darth vader on the tube oh they're gonna have to make the, be so the thing too funny. short Mm-hmm. yes please i am begging <laughs> when robin said you could have sewed it i just made me laugh does she really think that he's gonna get some fabric and sit there and sew a darth vader costume well, i don't know why she thought that it was just funny to me yeah that is funny to me too i do feel bad for him though when people are looking at him and he's clearly embarrassed it's yes. really outside oh, his comfort zone so embarrassing yeah mm-hmm. it reminds me of when i was in elementary school Every single year on Halloween, I would walk to school in my costume and have massive anxiety until I saw another kid in a costume (laughs) because I'd worry that I got the wrong day. Yeah. So when I read the part where he starts to feel more at ease when other people in costumes start joining, I was taken right back to those moments. I felt (laughs) him in that moment. Yeah. (laughs) One of the other costumes that they see is their first Drek. And the way it's described, it completely covers the wearer. And I get the impression that you can't tell if it's a man or a woman. It feels purposely ambiguous in a way that makes me wonder if it's reflecting anime. We're supposed to wonder if it's him. Anime did tell someone he was going as Drek, right? Yeah. I think we're definitely supposed to be suspicious of anyone in a Drek costume because of that. Mm-hmm. And the anime and Rowling deliberately chose slash designed that costume to hide as much of the wearer as possible to keep us guessing. Yeah, I kind of remember wondering if that was anime right there with them on my first read. They should have dramatically unmasked him like a Scooby-Doo villain. Some <laughs> rando under the mask. Just go around unmasking all the Dreks. It would be very funny. Possibly cause a bit of a scene. I'm surprised surprised Oliver Peach didn't do that. Yeah, me too, actually. That would fit right up there with his level of obnoxiousness and <laughs> Does stupidity. Does seem like the kind of plan he'd come up with. Yeah. With just the right level of forethought, too. Got high opinions of Oliver Peach over here. Mm-hmm. Robin shows strike posts on a subreddit about narcissistic parents that she found from Jago's eldest daughter, Christabel. And these are... These posts are horrifying. Yeah. Do you think it was a deliberate choice to have Strike wearing a mask when they discussed this for really the first time? 
Do you know what I mean? Because he thinks about the fact that he's been avoiding talking about it with her. So I got the impression that maybe it's easier to discuss one of their elephants in the room if they can't look directly into each other's faces. Yeah, I agree. That's a great point. I think it does make it easier for them to talk about it here when there's Mm -hmm. that degree of separation between the two of them. Yeah, I do too. Like I was just saying a minute ago, these posts are just horrific. Jago needs to be put away for a very long time. What an abusive shithead. Yeah. It rings really true of what I know of abusive men or fathers, the tone, the language, everything. I think she nailed it. There's an interesting response from Jago's daughter here to one of the comments where she says that Charlotte is as bad as Jago. And it makes me wonder what exactly does she mean by that? I mean, were we talking mm-hmm. physical, mental abuse? Is it enabling his shitty behavior? What is it? Yeah, that made me really curious too. God, that's really sad that she already has this abusive father and then someone else comes then along. Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Yikes. I have to wonder if she's also physically abusive with her children. We mm-hmm. know she is with her partners. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel really bad for all those kids. Yeah. Yeah. The second Reddit post is upsetting for a lot of reasons so obviously the abuse is horrible right mm-hmm. jago needs to go to jail drop dead Garbage he man. needs to be goodbye earl yes multiple choice option anything <laughs> you know <laughs> but i do have to admit that the grandmother or jago's mom makes me really angry too mm-hmm. i was so angry when i read that this woman told the children to go apologize after they were literally beaten by him mm-hmm. i just really struggle with this because i don't want to blame the women around jago more than jago himself because he's the abuser but i do also feel this visceral anger at his mother and at charlotte for turning the other way it's just yeah ugh. it is given the patterns of generational abuse that we know i find it very likely that jago's father was also horrifically abusive because oh. boys of abusive fathers frequently turn into abusive men yeah 100 percent. i have no doubt no doubt so jago's mother is here passing down to her granddaughters the same lesson that she had taught to her mm-hmm. keep quiet appease your abuser it's not that yeah. bad it's your fault and i'm just this is going to a larger sort of point in my heart but i'm frequently furious about the ways in which women are complicit in an active enforcers of patriarchal violence and female socialization of all kinds my point is i can understand why this thing happens but i can't excuse it because women are never going to be free of this violence unless that cycle is broken i suppose that while my anger might not be as visceral i do have a sense of disgust and fury at these women i guess just as a woman and as a mother i expect other women and mothers to want to marry Anne and wanda the situation with me not force the victims to apologize or say oh well like Charlotte does. Mm-hmm. I just really struggle with this. It With Charlotte, too, it makes me really, really angry at her in this book, more so than I think I've ever been at her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a goodbye Earl reference, in case anyone wonders what I meant oh, by Marianne that and Wanda. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes uh-huh. I forget the lyrics to things, but that is a great song. It it's is. It's a great song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also want to say that this mentions that Jago only loves his son. So that's what Chrissy says. And I know why that is in this weird world where he is going to inherit things. But that little boy is also not safe from abuse just because he's a boy. Jago is an abuser. So he's going to abuse all his children. And the second that boy shows his own personality, his own goals outside of his father's, the second he steps a toe out of line from what's expected of him, he's also facing a lifetime of abuse again, makes me frustrated that Charlotte doesn't care. She's even worse than you thought. Charlotte, it is even worse than I thought, which is 
incredible. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head here. And I really hope that those kids can get away from Jago and pretty much anybody in that family. Because I feel like they're not going to be safe with anyone. No. No. I don't see any possibility because I've kind of heard it floating around like people aren't sure where some of these people's storylines are going. But either of you see Charlotte or Jago putting a stop to this or getting a shot at redemption because I don't (laughs) see that for Jago but I do wonder about the trajectory for Charlotte's arc I mean if JK Rowling can find a way to redeem Charlotte then god bless her but I highly doubt it I just don't think that's in the cards for Charlotte personally neither do I she's 40 years old and has shown no sign of wanting to change or do any sort of introspection I, I don't think she's becoming a better person anytime soon yeah what are the arguments for that Ken's I've heard that some people think that Jago is too one-sided, mm-hmm. that he seems like almost like a cartoon villain in how awful he is. He doesn't really seem like as much of like a well-rounded. We don't know Jago very well. The point is that we know he's an abusive man. Mm-hmm. What more are we going to learn about Jago? I don't really think he's that important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I feel like humanizing him is like, uh, I don't really know that I want to humanize an abuser, you know? No. He seems like a pretty accurate depiction to me. I thought so too. Yep. I know this man is what I'm thinking of. That does not seem one-sided cardboard cut out at all. No. (laughs) So Strike's reaction where he's staring at this post, he stares at it for so long that Robin thinks he might be asleep, which is funny. But he says, Christ, I should have, of course, he's knocking his daughters around. The way that he's staring at it for so long is interesting to me because it reminds me of when he thinks about Robin's kindness and care for children that she's never met. Because he has that too. Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. what that says to me. I fully agree. I think that him staring so long, while we can't see his face to get his, you know, stony yeah. faced, it's an indication that it's hitting him really hard. I'm certain mm-hmm. he, he feels for those girls and that he's yeah. disgusted and angered by what he's reading. And yeah, he absolutely doesn't want to make that worse for them. I'm worried slash expecting that we're going to find out that he or Lucy might have experienced some abuse in that commune or somewhere else. I mean, I'm certain that that's the case regarding the abuse. Yeah. Once again, I can't wait to hear the running grave so that uh, we can find out exactly what went down. Watch it's not in there at all. About something completely fucking different. I'm going to be like, <laughs> ah, Joe, you're de-tormenting me. She's like, I said you were right to dread it, but I didn't say when. Uh, God damn it. <laughs> Strike recounts Charlotte's previous reactions to hearing about one of Jago's previous girlfriends having been physically abused by him Mm, and i kind of wish that we had gotten to hear some of robin's thoughts about what strike said yeah charlotte is just so terrible the fact that she can laugh at a woman being abused is awful but the contrast there to robin is really nice because these two women are just complete opposites yeah robin's dead silence to that story really says it all doesn't it and it's a great sign that strike is telling these horrible stories about charlotte to robin because i don't think he's done that before no but i also like that he gave her a little bit more about charlotte expecting him to run off (gasps) to the church to save her makes me wonder if she thought about him showing up to her wedding oh my god but yeah because white charger car that shanker almost definitely stole it's basically the same thing right so that's how he showed up he was her knight in stolen car he was her knight in bandaged armor oh (laughs) that's an episode title for when we get to the ending of career of evil remember it Knight in bandaged armor it really makes me laugh when robin watches strike taking a picture with somebody while he's dressed as darth vader and it says that she 
quote, tries to suppress a smile as she imagined what Strike's expression would have looked like had he been unmasked. <laughs> yeah, I really wish that he would have noticed her trying not to smile because that could have been a cute moment between Adorable. them. Adorable. I love that Strike posed for the picture with the little boy. I mean, yeah. I know it would have caused more of a fuss to say no. It was the easiest mm -hmm. route. Still really sweet, but Strike indulged it and made that little boy's day, you know? It would have been funny if he kept getting stopped. And was growing more and more annoyed. Oh my god, that would be <laughs> hilarious. All right, another request for the adaptation, please. <laughs> Strike wearing the Darth Vader mask, he also wore a mask in Lethal White at the yeah, protest. He did. Mm -hmm. Just a nice little parallel to Lethal White, because I feel like there's a lot of connections there for me. Add it to the list. It's extensive now. <laughs> yeah. Now. Strike walks out into the halls of Comic-Con and is awestruck by what he <laughs> sees, I think. <laughs> He's overwhelmed, I bet. Yeah, definitely. Um, there are a couple of things about this that I really like. And one of those is that he doesn't quite understand what a minion is. <laughs> and saluting the stormtroopers. Oh, I love it. So cute. Yes. I love that it says he felt honor bound to salute back. <laughs> oh. I've never been to Comic-Con, but I am a big Disneyland person. And I have a pair of Hufflepuff mouse ears that I wear sometimes. And I cannot tell you how many people respond to them when I wear them. I get random strangers high-fiving me. One person just yelled, yeah, Hufflepuff from I don't know how far away. People start conversations. Hufflepuff is the best or, oh, I'm a Ravenclaw. It's funny because it's just that immediate sense of camaraderie you feel with a complete stranger when you spot that you have this common interest, mm -hmm. which to me kind of shows just how important things like this can be. You know, it's more than just fiction. It's about making human connections, you know? So I just yeah. really liked this part because it rings true to me. Even though Strike doesn't genuinely feel that, it still feels real to me. Yeah. I liked it. It does. And I mean, he does feel strongly enough. He, he feels honor bound. He's like, He's I'm Darth bound. Vader. I got to salute these <laughs> stormtroopers. How could I not do it? I have a question about one of the, these descriptions of the people who are in costumes. Some of them are easier to guess and some of them are a little bit more difficult but i was wondering is this guy that's described as being encased in what appeared to be a white and blue exoskeleton made of metal is that something from halo i have no idea one of them sounded like waluigi from mario kart a mario kart reference makes sense because we know that Joe likes playing Mario Kart, but I don't know about the other one. Halo seems possible. I've never been able to figure that one out. I can't wait to see the scene where he goes into Comic-Con. I think this is going to be awesome. going to be so funny. They better keep it in. I swear to God. When Strike approaches the Ink Black Heart booth, he notices Zoe and another woman wearing a Drex game t-shirt. Do we know who this was? Because... I want to think that it's Rachel. I was wondering that too. I kind of hope it was because we know she was coming in person, so it's possible. So were these people identifying themselves to each other in person with their Drex game usernames since they were masked? Yeah, that makes sense. I like to think this is Rachel. That makes sense to me. It makes the most sense to me. They're hanging out the whole day. Me too. While Strike is over by the Ink Black Heart booth, he sees who we know now is mm. Oliver Peach. His outfit is really stylish and put together, which I don't know why, but it's not what I was expecting from Vile Pachora, known idiot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing at known idiot. That's funny. <laughs> but I guess having a boatload of money right. to help with looking stylish. So presumably he's very into surface appearances. We know he loves showing off his rich kid stuff on Twitter. I don't know. I just never thought about it, I guess. Yeah. Stylish. Yeah. But yeah, it makes sense. As we come to the end of the chapter, Strike realizes what Drek is. And as I read this, this 
reminded me of what Joe was saying on Twitter about when she realized what exactly Drek was. Yeah. He knew at last what Drek was. The sinister, scythe-like nose, the long black cape and hood, the cheerful insistence on playing games that ended in disaster. Drek, of course, was death. Very nice dramatic pauses, too. Thank you. Yeah, it definitely feels like something is coming, right? We should have known that death was about to make an attempt. That's how it feels to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It feels so ominous. Like, enemy isn't done. And the danger in this book is about to be turned way up. Oh, it is. All right. Fun Comic-Con. Can we just yeah. stay in this chapter forever? Nope, it's time to go to chapter 55. All right. In this chapter, Robin interviews Yasmin Weatherhead as Venetia Hall, which is a chapter we've all been looking forward to. I think it's great. I'm going to have a ton of fun. I love your positivity. I'm also here. (laughs) (laughs) I am technically present. (laughs) That was really good. (laughs) The epigraph. No, dull heart, you are too small. Thinking to hide the ugly doubt behind that hurried puzzle little smile only the shade was it you saw but still the shade of something vile and that is i believe that's neme tangito and that's by charlotte new i think this is really speaking to hartella the heart hiding doubt puzzled little smile which also feels like her the best part for me is the ugly doubt line because it seems like this entire chapter is just robin slowly bringing the doubt that yasmin has buried deep down and she's shining a light on it so the whole epigraph tells a story for me of yasmin having a bit of a come to jesus moment with Hmm. when robin starts poking holes in this delusion that she's created i think you're right with that one something buried deep down in yasmin has questioned these things but she's sort of hidden it under what she wants to believe right I feel like Yasmin hides a, a lot of insecurity behind her little smile. Rowling points out her creepy little cat teeth several times, which I don't think is an accident. <laughs> the cat teeth thing was so distracting because I was just picturing the Cheshire cat I was from picturing, Alice in Wonderland. Like, filed down pointy teeth. Yeah. Like it was horrifying to me. That was a deliberate choice there. It really painted the picture for me. Yeah. Is that the one point about Yasmin that we can agree with? <laughs> the creepy fucking cat teeth? We don't want that. <laughs> such a weird description it's so weird. it literally it's just like i'm just pictured she's the cheshire cat now that's all i see is she also purple does she go upside down when she's talking the cat teeth are great i you know what it's now my new favorite thing about her <laughs> At the beginning of this chapter, we switch perspectives over to Robin and we see her kind of get ready for her interview with Yasmin. Pools, I thought you might appreciate this about Yasmin, that it says she was prompt to the minute. I mean, if she's not 15 minutes early, then she's late. (laughs) Now I'm just being difficult. Yeah. Being prompt to the minute tells me that she was early and she was Mm. standing somewhere watching because that's what I would do. Behind a tree. Yeah. That checks out. Okay. Let's talk about Yasmin's hair because it says... It's over one eye, Veronica Lake style. And it really stood out to me because I didn't know who Veronica Lake was, but I remembered the name because this is a reference used that also describes Lorelai's hair. Yes. Just another connection to Letha White for me. But I Googled the picture and I want to say it's over one eye, but it's not as bad as I was picturing. So you can definitely still see both of her eyes. It's like a heavy side part. Mm. It's not as bad as I was imagining it. Yeah. The style I see when I Google Veronica Lake is pretty, 
But I feel like Yasmin probably takes it to the extreme since Robin is stated as addressing the woman's one visible eye. The way that I imagine it, mm-hmm. if she has that style hair, it's going to occasionally fall over her eye. So yeah, I can imagine Robin addressing one eye. I just can't imagine this being constant because it's ridiculous. Like it can't <laughs> be. How would you walk? Walk into a lot of things, I guess. It just, it's too silly to be true. I just Bump into can't. many walls. <laughs> uh, but Googling the pictures has helped me make sense of this in my head because mm. it was just so ridiculous. But we also had a listener send in this comment and they sent it a while back, but I made a note of it in my ebook so I wouldn't forget. So it's from at bliss3333 on Twitter Mm -hmm. about this Veronica Lake hairstyle. And they said that it denotes intentional blindness to what is in front of them. And Lorelai refused to accept Strike's long stated intentions. Up talker is what they're calling Yasmin was intentionally oblivious to just about everything. Yeah, you know what? That checks out because I didn't really like Lorelai either. And I totally agree about the symbolism of the hair. I think that generally intentional obliviousness, refusing to see, just makes me want to shake someone and be like, wise up. It drives me nuts. I mean, I agree. Is that why you don't like Lorelai? There were a few different reasons that I had. We don't need to go into them because they're probably really petty. Hi. (laughs) I mean, in terms of the blindness, I just feel like with Lorelai, I give her a little bit more grace because she's blind because she's in love. Yeah. It's not quite the same as Yasmin, but I do think that the connection makes sense. That's true. While queuing for drinks, Robin wonders about Yasmin's sense of self-importance, which is definitely something that I was thinking about a lot while I was reading this chapter. Yeah, I'm laughing at Robin's thought that the idea that being a moderator in a tiny niche fandom online game could give someone that level of self-importance. That's just embarrassing. I don't think that that's it. I think Robin is remembering that Katya said Yasmin was sweet and sincere. Mm -hmm. but Robin finds her full of self-importance so Robin is thinking either one of them is wrong or becoming a mod has changed her okay so you (laughs) think Katya was just so I think Katya was just wrong and Robin's (laughs) estimation is more accurate (laughs) okay I mean Robin is pretty good at judging character for the most part isn't she sometimes not Mm, Raph true or her ex-husband or Gus yeah I can't help but notice the contrast between Yasmin and Tim Ashcroft the pedophile when Robin asks her to speak into the tape recorder because Tim Ashcroft the pedophile immediately gives a villain's monologue while she seems very unsure of herself Mm -hmm. I think it's a bit telling of their true characters him being a villain and her being really insecure although to be fair I wouldn't know what to say either neither would I (laughs) I'd be like oh yeah yeah no i agree and i just realized reading her say her full name that weatherhead could basically be synonymous with airhead (laughs) kind of made me laugh but i had to actually look it up and the name apparently means sheep herder which is a bit ironic because yasmin is more like the sheep about to be eaten by wolves in very badly constructed sheep disguises There's a comparison here between Yasmin and Edie, and I feel like there's a point that Joe's trying to make here, and I'm not really sure what that is. So I'm going to read this bit here really quick, and I'm hoping you guys maybe have some thoughts. The handbag Yasmin was cradling on her lap was of patent leather and looked brand new. Her fingernails were immaculately painted. 
Robin was fleetingly reminded of a far more expensive bag ruined by ink stains held by grubby fingers on which there was a smudged tattoo. I feel like I'm at the cusp of something here, but not quite sure where to go with it. Because it says something to me about the effects that being Black Heart had on both of these women, where Edie ended up really suffering and Yasmin enjoying it. But even as I'm saying that, I'm not sure because there's nothing wrong with Yasmin writing a book about fandom. Just like there's nothing wrong with her being put together or having perfect nails and a nice bag. Maybe the mention of Edie's bag being far more expensive is, I guess, a lesson that even with money, you can be miserable. I don't really know. I agree with you that something's here, but I'm not quite sure what it is. I think so too. I think pretty much everything you've said is where I would tend to lean with it. I couldn't come up with anything. This baffled me a little too. Well, listeners, if you guys have any thoughts, feel free to let us know. Yeah. What do you guys think of this passage? What is it saying about these two women? There's a part here that I'm almost positive is a red herring. So we read about a girl with red hair that's walking past Yasmin during the beginning of the interview. And this is Joe leading us to wonder whether or not Paper White slash Nicole has come to Comic-Con, right? Yeah, we actually got a DM on Instagram about this recently, and this was something that I hadn't spotted before. So there's a mention here of a young woman with bright red hair, like what we've heard the real paper white has. And in the next chapter, there's a mention of a guy in a wheelchair. So I think that this is maybe supposed to make us wonder if Paper White and Morehouse really did meet up. It She's totally, fooling us in a cruel way. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> and we all know that Rowling loves hiding actual clues and stuff in the background. I know. Which is why... Everyone went nuts over the silver-haired man. But yeah, that's a red herring slash trick for sure. Okay, going back to the self-importance, I know it's easy to laugh about it, but when Yasmin says she is a fan and an insider, she's not wrong, right? (laughs) So I think that if someone were to write a book on fandom, she might be a good person. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Sadly, based on this interview with her, I don't think that any book she'd write would be actually very accurate or objective or offer real insights no i I yeah (laughs) it would be biased and inaccurate but i don't think it needs to be any of those things to sell well yeah i think i think it's possible that the book could be really successful especially now that it's linked to a high profile it so could be like the real bombix morian silkworm yeah she just needs to advertise oh i wrote this with the guy who was accused of her murder and then the guy who actually did her murder exactly she might have to put the book on hold after the arrest because i imagine that she's gonna have to testify She's going to be a person that's going to have to testify for sure. Yeah, for sure. So maybe she'll be forced to wait. Maybe that time will give her some much needed perspective. But also, (laughs) a lot of this is going to be public information now, so she'll have to be a little bit more honest. That might make the book better if she went the honest route and said, fine, I'll just tell it all. Well, yeah, she's got to tell it to herself first. Now I want to know the outcome of this book. (laughs) I know, me too. Yeah. Robin's ongoing internal commentary about Yasmin's upspeak and some of the things that she's saying has me in stitches. And there are two two <laughs> things that I want to point out. Robin is me in this chapter. I love her so much. It kind of reminds me a bit of the interview with Cynthia in Troubled Blood, where she had that sort of judging monologue. Yeah, a bit. Although I think her dislike of Cynthia was more of a projection than Mm. this is she doesn't really have anything personal that she's reacting to here like Ah. she did with cynthia so she's accurately Mm -hmm. assessing yasmin's character with her i guess that is what i'm saying Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) so i mentioned that there were two parts that i really liked this first bit that made me laugh was robin's thoughts 
thinking about Yasmin talking to the police, her internal monologue goes wondering whether this sensitive officer had any existence outside of Yasmin's imagination. Robin said with as much sincerity as she could muster, it must have been awful for you. So do we think that Yasmin did make this officer up? Is she writing self-insert romance fic starring this imaginary sensitive cop or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't think he's made up. I think whoever told her to be safe mm. probably also said it's a bad situation and she's embellishing it to make herself feel more innocent than she actually feels. Yeah, it seems possible. The second part that was the one that I found amusing was whenever Yasmin is calling the Ink Black Heart a unique phenomenon and her thought process goes, she said it with no apparent irony as devotees of a hundred other franchises tramped past the barrier separating their small table from the thoroughfare beyond. I mean, I guess we all feel that way though, don't we? About the thing we love. Yes, the Strike fandom is also a completely unique phenomenon. A bunch of lunatic very much obsessed with this fictional character a level beyond anything that's ever been seen before a level of thirst unmatched in the history of mankind can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not i don't even know myself sometimes i genuinely don't know whether i actually am being sarcastic or whether i mean it sometimes my brain just puts stuff in my mouth and it's got no sort of input on my thoughts this feels like a way where strike and robin are similar because i don't think either of them really get fandom no yeah yeah it definitely seems like fandom is not their scene or something that they would really get which honestly feels bizarre as somebody who's kind of hopped from online fandom to online fandom you know every few years since i've been on the internet (laughs) i am fandom i don't know how to exist on the internet what do you mean if i ask you what (laughs) fandoms you're in and you don't have an answer for me (laughs) i don't have that experience yeah you're a normal you actually go outside and have a life you're much more of a normal than we are i think (laughs) i see i don't think that i'm good at fandom Strike is just an anomaly for you. Maybe. This is just a blip for us. (laughs) The fandom consumes our life. And Mm -hmm. the bits where we're normal are the blips. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because like certain aspects of fandom, I'm like, I'm going to lose my mind right now. Yeah. I hear you. So Lots of bad takes. I kind of get this because I feel like I'm bad at fandom. Mm. I really do. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of times where I'm like, I just need to walk away. Yeah. Well, that is one of the most important skills of fandom. So maybe in a way you're ahead. I'm just thinking of that line from uh, Ted Lasso. You don't know how healthy that actually is. Anyway, it's clear that Robin isn't a big fan of Yasmin, but she also has a really unique perspective with this interview because she knows so much about Yasmin and she has insider gossip from Drex Game. So Mm. It's not going to endear Robin to Yasmin to see how she's spinning everything about the dossier and the rumors about Edie. Pretty much everything that Yasmin says here is nonsense, ranging from, you know, slightly spun to you're living in a different reality on the sort of bullshit meter. Sorry, I was imagining Carl Pilkington. Remember when he wanted to be bullshit man where he flies in? (laughs) That was good. Bullshit man. That's bullshit. In this universe, (laughs) Carl Pilkington flies in. Flew in. He's like, that's bullshit. bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but do you remember when Strike interviewed Chris? Christian Fisher at the beginning of Silkworm because he thought about how he was used to knowing more than the person he was interviewing and he felt at sea Mm -hmm. and I'm like reading this this is what the interview is like when you definitely know more than the person and Robin 
can see so much beyond what Yasmin intends for her to see because of it. And it's it's just really fun to read because it of is. that. It is. It is really um, fun. Anyway, but it's bloody rich of Yasmin to pretend she was trying to be altruistic and warn Josh about the nasty rumors mm-hmm. so they could put the PR on it. I'm like, mm-hmm, we yeah. see you. Something interesting that I noticed during this interview is that Yasmin starts talking without a whole lot of prodding from Robin at all. She seems very eager to talk about herself and throw Edie entirely under the bus. Yeah. Speaking of that, I get the vibe that she was into Josh and jealous of Edie. Does anyone else feel that? Or is that just me? I mean, Mm. I didn't think Mm. that ever. Um, Mm. I can see it being true in a fangirl sort of way, but I don't think it's the same as Katya. Oh, yeah, maybe. It was just that Josh was so good looking and she really feels, I don't know. There are some things that I do like that she says about the Ink Black Heart in general how she talks about being able to relate to the characters when you felt out of place or hitting rock bottom. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably very true for her. Um, It's one of the things that reminds me that this is a real fandom and people really like it. Yeah, that's fair. That bit probably resonated with a lot of the people reading this book, but it it made me think obviously of Harry Potter. You know, you can relate to the characters and it helps you get through your stuff. I mean, I feel that way about these books more strongly. Mm -hmm than Mm -hmm. I think I did about Harry Potter, honestly. Yeah. But I do think that Yasmin feels out of place. I believe it. Here's something that I thought was kind of funny. When Yasmin tells a story about how she met Josh by visiting Highgate and then getting lost, quote unquote, and ending up (laughs) at North Grove, I'm kind of laughing and rolling my eyes that she's lying about getting lost because we all know that she knew exactly where she was. But it's not something that I can look at Yasmin and laugh at her for because visiting important locations from a series you love how unheard of (laughs) right (laughs) i mean yeah i laugh as if i haven't given a great deal of thought about ways i could orchestrate a meeting with jk rowling where we become (laughs) best friends yeah that's a part where i definitely felt for yasmin a bit if i had a lot more expendable income you bet your butt i would be traveling all over the uk and like visiting sites Mm -hmm. from the series Mm -hmm. also just as a side note shout out to katie and the folks at strike fans for the walking tours that they have on the website they're very cool i definitely want to do that one day yes definitely the stuff that i can fault her for though is when she really minimizes anime's abuse towards Edie and basically explains that she thinks it was justified because fans felt disrespected by what Edie said about the game yeah that's ridiculous yeah this is where for me she gets really shitty i mean she goes beyond naivete to just pure nastiness here when she says abusive might be the word to describe enemies behavior Come on. It might? Might? What Edie said wasn't even that bad. Right? It really wasn't. It really like, come was on, guys. Not. Get a grip. <laughs> like, Jesus. Yeah. Touch some grass. I couldn't remember who she thought Anime was at this point and why she's going on about personal circumstance. Oh, uh, yeah. She thinks that Anime is Nigo. Um, okay, right. Upcar. Yeah, which, right. to be fair, I kind of thought that at one point, too. Sure. <laughs> But for her to have so much sympathy for such an asshole, I guess it fits the trend of her opinions of anime and Philip Ormond, actually. Yeah. But it's weird because we know Inigo isn't actually hurting for money. Strike can clearly see that given their multiple properties, etc. I'm just guessing that Inigo is not an asshole to people he can manipulate into thinking he's Mm. not an asshole, right? You know? And if they had any interaction, maybe he's complained about money because we know he just complains to random strangers about Katja's business skills. Yeah, really. I was just thinking if she'd ever seen him interact with Katja the way Strike and Robin did. Yeah. (laughs) But maybe he reigns it in better yeah i can imagine her ignoring that though 
Yeah, me too. Another bit where I'm rolling my eyes at her is she's so dishonest about so much, but when she's talking about Josh not being in it for the money with the implication that Edie was, and it was all her fault that it was all corporate, she says, because I think you've got to be completely honest if you're going to do something like this. Oh my God. (laughs) It's a good line. It is. And it's so typical of what pretty much everyone in this fandom has done, which is blame Edie for everything they don't like. And give Josh a free pass as if somehow he's just a passive victim, not involved in any of these decisions at all. And I'm like, gosh, wonder why well, that just is ridiculous in the first place. Like, who yeah. cares if it's corporate? It's a business. Yeah. Like they want to make a living from the thing they created. So sue them. I guess it's kind of why I love JK Rowling giving the backbone to two teenagers. Yeah. Zoe and Rachel. I saw somewhere on some article or review I'm sorry, I can't remember where it was, but they said that they thought her sympathy for teenagers had diminished over time. Mm -hmm. But actually, I mean, she's attributing really brave qualities to these teenagers in this book, Rachel, Zoe, and even Henry. Yeah, Rachel's one of the most likable characters in this book for me. Good for them. This next part is so funny when Robin brings up the happening and she says, presumably you address the possibility they were manipulating fans in the book. I, well, not really. I I don't think any of the fans would have fallen for it if the Havening had tried to, like, plant fake stories or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is amazing. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's uh, funny. Yeah, yeah, I snorted out loud at that bit. That was fucking hilarious. <laughs> so good. Like, Yasmin, Alanis Morissette called. She wants her irony back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Robin realizes during this interview that Yasmin thinks that the actor who replaced Wally as Drek is active and playing in Drek's game, which (laughs) makes me laugh. Yasmin couldn't surely believe that Michael David was anonymously playing Drek's game. Was she deluded enough to think a successful actor could be devoting hours of his life to proving that Edie Ledwell was anime rather than getting on with what appeared to be a flourishing career on television and stage? And if Yasmin did indeed believe such a fantastic lie, who exactly had expertly groomed her into believing that she was in conversation with Michael David? Do you know how many episodes of Catfish I've seen where people believe they're talking to someone famous? This is a thing. It is a thing. (laughs) Wow. I just don't understand anything less than the verified Twitter account DMing me in a live video chat and i'd be like you're full of shit i'm genuinely curious about what lord drex said to her to get her to believe this there's a part in the next chapter where strike and robin agree that it had to be skillfully done because she's not a complete idiot she's an adult holding down a job that's i've seen a lot of complete idiots holding down jobs but those are strike and robin's words fair i think in this world where they have to be secretive in drex game it might be easy for lord drex to have followed this actor and convinced her he knew details that could maybe be confirmed on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always assumed that he was more direct about it in private DMs maybe. with Yasmin. Everything falls apart when Robin asks if Yasmin knows if the quote-unquote people who are saying that stuff are Black for certain. And the way that Joe describes the shift in Yasmin's body language here is just perfect. In the pause that followed, Robin was certain Yasmin was pinned to her chair by burgeoning fear. Perhaps the doubt she'd successfully suppressed for so long had at last crawled, scorpion-like, out of her subconscious. Perhaps, too, she was starting to suspect that Venetia Hall, who asked certain questions so sharply, wasn't what Yasmin had thought her either. Yasmin's face had blanched to an unhealthy yellow, but with those blotches still disfiguring her neck. 
The longer the silence between them continued, the more terrified Yasmin looked. This passage is fantastic. Scorpion-like? Such a creepy image, right? Burgeoning? Burgeoning? <laughs> oh my god, sorry. <laughs> but anyway, it's good to know that some part of Yasmin has, has a clue, even if she got it real late. Well, I guess it's like we talked about before with the message of change. It's never too late, I guess. Yeah, mm -hmm. maybe. Maybe there's hope for Yasmin yet. Robin's shift, though, is what I love because mm. she knows she's planted this horrible seed of fear in Yasmin that she's been made a total fool of by the Havening, by Lord Drek, by Anime, and that she's been blind to it all. So I think Robin's figuring why not just go for it and really drive her point home. Mm -hmm. I love when Robin asks her how she doesn't know that Anime is the one who killed Edie because it says, well, you've been very eloquent on the subject of how much justifiable grievance Anime had against Edie Ledwell, said Robin, Ooh. smiling. Ooh. I love the bit where Robin says, oh, well, if it's someone you've met face to face, because she knows knows full well that Yasmin has not met Lord Jack face to face and this is just gonna eat away at her speaking of masks right it almost feels like Robin's mask of Venetia Hall starts to slip yeah. a little bit but she's doing it deliberately mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. really plant this fear in her it's really good yeah it is as we get closer to the end of the chapter um it mentions that she slips out of her up talk <laughs> why couldn't we have read some of her talking that's not with the up talk because honestly i feel like that would have been a main highlight for this chapter like a little bit of realness yes her up talk is kind of like a customer service voice to me yeah mm -hmm. i think it's a nervous tick and she was so shocked and freaked out that she didn't do it i feel bad for robert glenister for having to keep that up for however long that chapter mm -hmm. is it's probably like half an hour he was great but yeah i mean i know i know people you don't like this chapter because Yasmin's annoying but this is really an excellent chapter because Robin is amazing in this interview and I think that she's even more amazing here than she was with Tim Ashcroft the pedophile because she almost turns on Yasmin she doesn't keep this facade of loving everything she says she really hammers home her point that Yasmin is being fooled and is being foolish without even saying it and Yasmin picks up on this shift in Robin's demeanor so I just love reading this because of how confident Robin is and her ability to hold that conversation and be in control. It really reminds me of some of the interviews we've seen Strike do, and it's really fun to read Robin kind of getting to be a little bit more of the bad cop here. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love bad cop Robin. Yeah. On my first read of this chapter, I could not get past the up talk. It, oh my God. But going through it now and being able to like see the rest of the stuff that's going on, Robin is fantastic. She's really coming to her own as a detective at this point. And it was interesting to me that she slipped out of the Venetia Hall character at one point briefly when Yasmin says the thing about Paperwhite being based on an old roommate of Edie's and she yeah. regrets it, but she recovers really well. She gets right back on track. She doesn't let it throw her, right? It's good. It's a good interview. Anyway, on to chapter 56. Yes, yes. we made it through the chapter. We made it through. We did it and we didn't kill each other amazing and you didn't have to fake your own death <laughs> i feel like that one person who left us a review once that said they don't like when you and i disagree <laughs> i'm so sorry to this person for this chapter so sorry but i think we did well <laughs> i think we did great pat on the back us let's have yeah, a drink there we go anyway chapter 56 vile patura or oliver peach is pushed onto the tube train tracks he does not mind the gap definitely he did not, not mind the gap he did not <laughs> the epigraph reads sense failed in the mortal strife like the watchtower of a town which an earthquake shatters down like a lightning-stricken mast 
And that's from Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. Is this epigraph comparing Viobachora to a watchtower? One moment he's fine and the next moment disaster hits and he's shattered? Yeah, I think that is a pretty good interpretation of it. Yeah, that's what happens. This is actually one of the poems that I had read before this novel was released. And this verse does indeed refer to someone falling in this state sort of between life and death. I'm not sure if there's a more profound interpretation beyond that. Oliver Peach was tricked into the path of this train, just as Laura in Goblin Market was lured into disaster. The poem itself is about temptation and redemption. And in the end, one sister saves the other because of her moral strength, where her sister had fallen into temptation. But in this case, we've got two brothers, each of whom are you know, morally speaking, enormous assholes. I don't think there's any redemption or salvation coming for Oliver Peach here after his fall. He's not going to reach that redemption that Laura did. After Robin finishes her interview with Yasmin, Robin and Strike debrief. It's so funny when Robin starts up talking and she says, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you, I definitely am more aware of this and I hear it when I'm editing and it's terrifying. Oh my god. Yeah, I yeah, I'm terrified of doing the up talking too. I do you want me to tell you that we all do it? No. Okay. No. I won't no. tell you then. Thank oh. you. Strike asks about Robin moving house and apologizes for not remembering. I realized that for the first time reading it right now that what prompted him to remember is the guy at the stall asking them to move because they were blocking his stall. So he said, "Would you mind moving?" And then it clicks. Yeah. I only just picked that up this read through too. Yeah. It's neat, isn't it? Because that's uh-huh. how it works. Someone says some random stuff and you suddenly are like, oh shit, I remember yeah. that thing that I was supposed to remember. Yeah. I liked that. Pretty accurate depiction of memory. Yeah. That's a really good catch. I didn't even catch that until you pointed that out. That is neat. I like the whole exchange with him apologizing. And he asks her if she has people helping her, which to <sighs> me says like, do you need help? Yeah. That's what I think he's saying. A hundred percent. Sometimes it just hits me that Robin knows in this moment that she's in love with him. And I'm just like, (gasps) sigh break. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just excited because this means we're coming up on one of my favorite parts of this book and I cannot wait to get to it. Yeah. It's sweet that he apologizes for forgetting unprompted and that he's, he is genuinely interested in her. He does care. Of course Um, he is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He notices Oliver Peach again. And I was about to say that Shrike is following his instinct again, but I think it's a little bit more than that. So he's noticed that Oliver Peach is someone who's hanging around the Ink Black Heart crowd, but who doesn't appear to be a fan of himself. It's he's very cleverly reading the situation. He is. I mean, that's what instincts are. Isn't it something you've observed pinging your radar and you might not know why, but Strike is so in touch with his observational powers for the most part that he's able to immediately understand why it's important because he consciously is seeing it. Whereas for most people, they see something, it doesn't register in their conscious brain, but it goes right to their gut. And they're like, I feel like I should follow him. I don't know why because I don't have that genius detective brain. I guess I just mean that there's a difference from when he wanted Nutley to follow Inigo because he couldn't explain it then but here he knows why. Yeah. It's just fun to read that. Yeah it is. So a part of this chapter that I really like. Prudence gets a mention as Strike and Robin are following Oliver Peach to the exit and I have to say each time she's mentioned they just they make me really happy every time that they come up. 
I like that both Strike and Robin get in a little personal life talk while they're doing this following. I like mm-hmm. them mixing personal and business because we know that that's going to be their future, their personal and their business all mashed up together. Yeah, I cannot wait to meet Prudence. Oh, I'm so excited to meet her. Yeah. Okay, so we get to the most exciting part of the chapter, yes. and that is when a black figure runs up and pushes the man with the red soled shoes, and that's Oliver Peach, onto the tube tracks. Not just the black figure, right? It's Batman. Batman. It's Batman. And then Robin takes three steps and jumps, which, oh my goodness, she's so brave, but so reckless in this moment, I agree. which makes me wonder. I know that we were all hooting and hollering about her, you know. Uh, <laughs> I think that's an accurate description of our arguments. Hooting and hollering. Yeah. <laughs> which of us does the hooting and which of us does the hollering? Am I? I feel like I'm hooting and you're hollering. Or do I have that backwards? I don't know. I, I guess we'd have to ask the listeners. Yeah. Which of Lindsay and Pools, who's the hoot and who's the holler? <laughs> anyway, Kent, what were you saying? I know that in our reactions episode, we were all carrying on about how badass you know Robin was in this particular moment, going in and and saving Oliver Peach. There have our thoughts changed? You know, a lot of time has passed since the book has come out, so. I guess that you specify from our predictions episode, probably, because now I do recognize some of the more reckless things that I think are there, but it's very brave. It still makes my heart stop. It makes me anxious, but this one is over so quickly. And there are other circumstances that I just, they're not as bad for me or as hard for me to read as the ending. Mm -hmm. So I don't have the same feelings about this moment that I do about the end. Yeah, my mind hasn't changed on this either. I've been wondering if she would have jumped so quickly if she knew it was Vile Pachara, mm. the asshole on the game that she'd been risking no her life idiot. to save. No yeah. an idiot, yeah. Personally, it might have made me hesitate a little bit. <laughs> That's an interesting moral question. Would you kill young Tom Riddle? Yeah, I'd Deadpool uh, the baby up. <laughs> you know, ending a Deadpool 2, he has to kill baby Hitler. Yeah, I don't know. I have a feeling Robin might still try, but I wonder if knowing the consequences of the choice mm. to jump would have made her hesitate because mm. those are people that she loves, right? Yeah. Maybe that's all part of the same question. So it says that two hands grabbed Robin. I love that Strike just, I mean, he obviously he's going to go for it and try and grab her. hes I feel like he's panicking right now. Yeah. But it later says that Robin feels pain from him grabbing her and that it's going to bruise. And I don't think that I've ever realized that it's kind of reflective of the first time that they met. It super is. I think we talked about it in our initial reaction episode. I don't remember. It does feel like a hugely deliberate callback to that Mm -hmm. for me. Can I just say though, that I love Strike yelling fuck's sake at her multiple (laughs) times because she probably just gave him a heart attack. But I still really, really, really wish that he'd hugged her. Because I think if I could change one thing about this book, that would be it. Like a brief, fierce hug with his strong arms for Robin to think about for the next five years. (laughs) For Robin, for me to think (laughs) about. For both of them (laughs) and you, yes. I just got a hugger, for God's sake, Cormoran. If I pulled my best friend out of the path of a train, I would hug my best friend. Yeah. Well, now I know what I definitely want for Running Grave. It makes me wonder if she deliberately is not putting these kind of physical 
she's doing it to torment us well I just I don't know what I'm really trying to say but this book really is about disconnection right so it's Mm -hmm. like did she did it cross her mind to think would he hug her here and then why she chose not to I hope that at some point we're going to get more more I'm going to ask her that on Twitter next time she's on. Why didn't Strike hug her? (laughs) I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm sure there is a reason. And she did it deliberately. I'm sure she she did, but it still upsets me. So we were just talking about Strike pulling Robin up off of the tracks and he ends up ripping her t-shirt. Well, of course, it's that upper body strength. Oh, yeah. A strong grip too probably mm-hmm. yeah Strong yeah fingers. but he ends up ripping her shirt and exposing her bra you know that is not the situation where i'd hoped we'd see strike ripping her clothes off <laughs> yeah i gotta say i was hoping for it but not in this context sure mm-hmm. well now all of a sudden i'm just thinking of again another lethal white parallel a different man ripping her clothes oh that bastard mm. Oh, you reminded me that that happened and now I'm angry. (laughs) God damn it. Very different situation there. Very Mm -hmm. different. This was a rip for a good reason. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd been wanting to destroy that dress and she got it. I hate Matthew so much. (laughs) You just reminded me. I'm sorry. I hate that asshole. But anyway, back to Gus being Batman. All this time we wanted Strike to be Batman and it turns out she was saving Batman for evil enemy. But I just realized, so we know enemy like the Dark Knight movie. so he's a batman fan is he identifying with this character in some twisted way i don't know enough about batman Mm. to know if there's some sort of way that gus could think of himself as batman i don't know i think that if he specifically likes the dark knight rises i think that he might identify with the villain in that movie which one was that that was bane bit of a megalomaniac but I think that he would probably identify with Bane a lot. I don't think that he seems like a vigilante. Yeah. Maybe it's a hiding your identity thing with Batman. Although mm. I guess all superheroes do it's that, don't superheroes. they? Yeah, that doesn't really count. Here's something that I noticed. When Strike is talking to the police officer, it was kind of weird for me to hear him describe Robin as his friend because he usually says my partner. Mm. But now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if it's because he didn't want to say there were detectives. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. smart. He wouldn't mm-hmm. want to draw attention to that, right? Yeah. It's so cool. These little tiny things that she puts in doesn't need to explain, but it's there. So smart. Yeah. So something that Strike notices that is of note is that Oliver Peach, a.k.a. Red Souls, has a Nordic rune that's tattooed on his chest that has the, I think it's pronounced Algis, mm-hmm. the symbol. Um, and that ties back to Oliver Peach's Algazard Twitter account. Strike sees the rune and he's like, oh, shit. That's how I'm going to be if I ever see it. Yeah. I do like the ending of this chapter where Robin tells him he can't smoke and he responds that he can't understand how she's not smoking. Yeah. Mostly because it reminds me of a dream I had the other day. Oh, right. Where <laughs> I was dreaming that I was watching the coda of Ink Heart <laughs> on the adaptation. But in this weird version, Robin is sitting there at the hospital just smoking, chain smoking like Pat. <laughs> It was so weird. I don't know why I dreamt that. And she was offering short cigarettes and he was like, no, remember I'm quitting. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) So that just made me laugh reading it this time after that dream. That's good. And a light note on which to end a chapter where a dude suffers serious brain injury from being shoved in front of a train. I guess we didn't talk about that much. But he's a Nazi, so we're not really that upset. Yeah. (laughs) okay last one right chapter 57 this is a really really short chapter yes Mm -hmm. 
All right. Chapter 57, Anime Bans Lord Drek from Drek's Game. The epigraph, slouch back to your haunts of crime. Ye do not know me, neither do ye see me. That's Judith by Ada Isaacs Minkin. This is another one that feels pretty straightforward to me. Anime is taunting Lord Drek and admitting guilt of this crime. But mm-hmm. he knows that Lord Drek can't see him, can't do anything about it, doesn't know who he is. So it really speaks to me of how Anime feels untouchable. Yeah. It does. I agree. This poem itself is great, by the way. Another one I recommend everyone goes to read. It is, of course, telling the story of Judith slaying Holofernes, which we know from the Bible. It's also actually one of my favorite paintings by Artemisia Gentileschi is a painting of the same story. But anyway, Judith in the poem and in the story is a hero who saves her city from invasion by sneaking into Holofernes the invader's tent because she's a beautiful widow and cutting his head off in his sleep. But the version of Judith in this poem is seriously bloodthirsty and and vengeful and drunk with power. But in this passage specifically, she's speaking to the invaders of her land as she moves among them unnoticed in disguise. And I feel like Enemy could definitely see himself as the Judith here, bravely attacking the invaders of his land, his Drex game. He's getting vengeance. He is cutting the people out who are trying to mess up his vision or whatever. So Enemy being framed as judith he clearly sees himself as the hero he's really unhinged basically yeah obviously the last chapter ended with vile being pushed in front of a train so his brother who we know is charlie peach lord drek he opens up a chat with anime in this chapter because the jig is up he knows that gus is responsible for pushing vile in front of the train mm-hmm. and his typing is riddled with typos here so i'm wondering is he drunk because that was my first thought Nah, I figured he was just rage typing. He is so furious. That's what I thought too. Yeah. I guess my initial thought was that maybe depending on how upset he was about it, I guess I could be assigning more emotion to this asshole than he probably deserves. (laughs) But I'm just wondering if maybe he was so upset about what happened if he had just gotten really, really drunk and then decided to message him and be like, you know, I know what you did, blah, blah, blah. I think that y'all are right, though, because anime does say, hey, slow down with your typing. You know, you might make fewer typos. So I think that Lord Jack or Charlie would have signed on instantly the second he could because he knows as soon as this happens that Anime did it. So this is one of the chat chapters that gives me the most chills. Mm-hmm. Like with Anime mm-hmm. with the taunting and the arrogance and then the final line being Lord Drek being banned from the game is just amazing. Yeah. Mm. There's one other one that rivals it for me but yeah, it's when Morehouse says hang on someone's at the door. Yeah. Oh, oh my god yeah but yeah this is a really intense chat chapter Mm -hmm. yeah especially given how short it is yeah and it's done so well you can tell that gus is not even a little bit afraid Mm -hmm. that this major terrorist group is now wanting to be after him but he's just he feels completely untouchable yeah and he he kind of is yeah Mm -hmm. like they aren't going to be able to find him right no this is the first time we've seen enemy completely drop his mask of oh no i'm just joking well and it is so creepy he's just unrepentant and you see his evil shining through here i think it's really weird that you say that about dropping his mask because it just it made me think of everyone goes to comic-con wearing masks and they leave with it down yeah you know 
Yeah, everyone's gotten their masks stripped away, kind of. Yeah, I mean, Yasmin mm-hmm. does a bit. And she does recognize Robin from the news footage eventually. She as does. Well. Yeah. Robin's mask comes down. Obviously, she's seen yeah. by the happening. Strike is exposed as well because of that. Yeah. Mm. Ooh. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but one thing about this chat that's interesting to me is that we do get a little clue with Enemy saying that Val Pachoro was a mistake. Mm. So it gets us thinking, what about that name is a mistake? Well, Strike figures that out pretty quickly. Joe loves an anagram, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. <laughs> yeah. The part that gave me chills is when Enemy laughs at the footage where Oliver Peach's head hits the train. Mm-hmm. I know there's nothing to like about the Peach Brothers or what they stand for, but it's so hard for me to take joy, I guess, yeah. in the violence of the moment or the physical pain of someone. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. just, it's really horrific. Yeah. The Peach Brothers are horrible people, but Anime's reaction is absolutely psychopathic. There's a big difference between not really being upset that someone horrible has died and actively taunting their family with their pain there's levels there and one is not equate to the other i think what you just said reminds me of when kia niven says that it's okay to not be sad when horrible people die Mm -hmm. don't really know what connection i was making there Uh because kia's ridiculous (laughs) in that thinking this is a little bit more of a complicated feeling yeah it is because they actually are horrible but at the same time it's awful it is someone's brother yeah someone's son it's complicated why do you have to go and make things so complicated don't get that <laughs> i got that stuck in my head i hate you <laughs> i'm not singing it though don't start hooting and hollering <laughs> <laughs> so that's the end of part three mm-hmm. now i know when we started out this part we were i felt like we were a little stumped about maybe what necessarily the part epigraph meant so i'm wondering if you guys had any additional thoughts about it i'll just read out the epigraph really quick if the epicardium and subjacent fat are removed from a heart which has been subjected to prolonged boiling the superficial fibers of the ventricles will be exposed it's a good idea to bring it back at the end i like that idea Mm -hmm. i guess one thing i like is the word exposed because like we just talked about with the mask slipping it feels like a lot of people have been exposed from their online personas yeah in this section So we've seen Val Pachar exposed as Oliver Peach in a really horrific way. Yasmin's Mm -hmm. inner doubt is exposed, like we just talked about with Robin and Strike being exposed. Speaking of exposure, the most memorable one in this section was, of course, Pez's penis. Oh, that was also exposed in this part. That was very exposed. And it was very memorable. How could I forget Pez's How penis? How could one forget that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, on a more personal level, Strike has been subjected to How some do you get boiling. More personal? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So it's hard to do. Strike has been subjected to some boiling in this part. You know, the pressure he's facing is starting to show in these cracks caused by him not having taken care of himself for so long. All of that, you're starting to see the fibers. I mean, that's my best guess. Yeah. His limitations are being exposed yes. to himself a little bit. Yes, they are. The shitty parts of his relationship with Madeline are fully exposed. Oh, yeah. That was my favorite bit of our last episode was that chapter. Yeah. We got super shippy with it. I think that's why. Finally, we're getting some real shippy bits soon. I I love it. Yeah, I feel like at this point in the book, it feels like things just happen like this. Mm -hmm. It really picks up. Speaking of, what are we doing next time? Next time, we are doing chapters 58 through 62. And this is an awesome set of chapters. 
Yeah. So we see Robin's dad being taken to the hospital. Strike helps Robin move into her new flat. And then Strike and Robin arrive at the hospital where Josh Belay is staying. Oh, I love that chapter with Flavia, too. Fun. Mm -hmm. As I said last time, we've officially hit the halfway point with this episode. So, oh my gosh, we're halfway done. And by the time we're done with this book, we're going to have the running grave. It feels like it's coming up quick. It Mm -hmm. sure does. Yeah. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files Pod. You can also contact us on our website at thesefilespod.com or email us directly at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.